Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode seven of Spill the OT podcast. And I need to talk to you guys because I don't know if it's just working on this podcast or talking to so many different therapists or hearing from so many of you, but I have this new renowned kind of love for our profession. And it's shocking me because I was feeling so burnt out a couple months ago to the point where I was ready to pursue any sort of alternative career, even looking to going back to school, like just very, very done with OT and the therapy world. So I think for me that this podcast has been an outlet where I'm able to kind of talk freely about what aspects of OT and just therapy in general frustrate me and I have difficulty with. And hearing that other people are experiencing the same thing makes me feel just so much more connected. And it's like renewing my love for the profession. I know I already said that, but it's true. So. I guess what I'm trying to say is if you're feeling a little bit burnt out or if you're feeling like you just don't know what you want to do right now, um, thinking about either exiting the career or taking a hiatus or just confused like I was feeling and still I'm feeling a little bit, then I think if you can take some time to really consider what's important to you like why you got into therapy in the first place or what's been your favorite part or maybe just finding a better work-life balance. Like can you switch to maybe 32 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week or something where you can give yourself a little bit of a break? Then I think that will help with the burnout a little bit. And obviously I am still kind of going through it, but I will say just working on this podcast has kind of been like a passion project. Obviously, I am not making very much money off of it. I think right now I'm at a total of like $4.80 that I've profited. So I am making a little money, but you know, not enough to buy a burrito bowl at Chipotle. But anyway, that's just how I'm feeling this week. And hopefully it'll continue because it is a good feeling to feel like you are more excited and interested in your job. Okay, so also I want to say a big thank you to the people who have been rating and reviewing this podcast on iTunes. One of them is very positive. One of them is not so positive, but I want to give everyone props where props are due. So um, SFLOT wrote, great source of info, but starts out dot 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 And then says, I'm an OT student in South Florida and left teaching to go back to school as a mom and a wife. The first episode is very negative. Every profession has its ups and downs. And if you aren't loving what you do, change it. People can tell if you aren't happy. I want to hear more about people's work experiences and future possibilities and uncovering things we haven't seen. Um, She gave a three out of five stars, which I have to say to anybody who is rating this, if you have critiques, I'm so open to it, but if you give the podcast a lower rating, it makes it more hard for people to find it on iTunes. So if you could do me a solid and if you really just hate the podcast, just click away. Uh, there are so many podcasts out there that you can listen to that 
paint OT in a beautiful light and they give very educational information that might be beneficial to you. So if you don't like it, I kindly ask that you move on because, you know, I want to give people the chance to speak their truth. And if that truth is negative, then I want to portray that. So if the first episode was negative, that's their experience. And if you have a different experience, then I would love to hear from you. So feel free to email me at spilltheot at gmail.com and we can coordinate you to come on the show and you can tell me how awesome you think this field is. But I want to give a platform for everybody to speak their truth. My truth, you've had a couple episodes to hear bits and pieces of what I feel, but you know, I've had more negative experiences than positive recently, but I think a lot of it is mindset and I'm trying to change my mindset around. So thank you for writing in. I appreciate it. But, you know, I'm not going to make this a super light and fluffy podcast because There are plenty of those out there, and if that's what you're looking for, I encourage you to go check them out. I also got a review from Samantha EP, and she wrote, Great info. I am a hopeful OT student in the application slash interviewing process of getting into grad school program for OT, and I've loved hearing insight from OT professionals on their experiences. Looking forward to future episodes. So thank you, Samantha. I really appreciate it, and she gave it 5 out of 5, which is so nice. So thank you so much. And we're going to change gears real quick. We're going to talk to a therapist who works in pediatric outpatient as well as early intervention. And she made her own website, occupationalanswers.com. Here we go. Uh, My name is Jenny Schaefer. I'm a 2013 graduate of the Texas Women's University Denton Campus OT class. Um, Since graduating, I have worked in several different areas uh, the first, what, first, I've actually worked there twice in different times, was Epic Pediatric Therapy, which is an outpatient pediatric clinic. Um, and the one I worked at was in Fort Worth, but I also did some work in surrounding clinics. Uh, primarily, we would see your, I always say these were kids that were either born with or acquired their difference. So we saw a lot of uh, autism, cerebral palsy, um, a lot of kids that for lack of better terms, were just not meeting their developmental needs. You know, they were not developing appropriately. Um, And so, uh, interestingly enough, because the one I worked at in Fort Worth was so close to the hospital district, we actually got to see some stuff that was kind of unusual. So I worked with kids with like arthrogyposis, worked with um, kids who had very uh, rare genetic seizure disorders, um, got to see a lot of really interesting stuff, and especially as a new grad, it was great. We have a big sensory gym, a lot of other therapists, very good at uh, just including all the other disciplines, which you don't always get. Um, from there, I decided I wanted to specialize in the younger children, since some of my favorite kids had been so much younger. So I switched to uh, ECI, which in Texas is run, or I should say in Tarrant County, is run by MHMR. So ECI stands for Early Childhood Intervention. So at that time, I was seeing children uh, zero to three years old. Um, And I would drive to their homes. That was not my favorite part um, because while working at Epic, I also did some home health uh, for children still. But I 
just didn't love the driving part, but I loved working with these young kids and that's how you access them, of course, because they're usually so immunocompromised, you need to go to them. Um, that was very interesting. You see a lot of stuff um, and a lot of drama comes with being in people's homes and eventually they kind of start to look at you like a piece of furniture and they will just carry on about their lives and it can be um, a bit overwhelming <laughs> because you're kind of in the middle of all their drama and all you're trying to do is just work with their kid. But I saw a lot of kids that were, um, you know, preemies, micro preemies who um, by the time I was in there handling them, they were not even at their due date yet. And I didn't feel very prepared for that. Um, because as you know, as a therapist, when they're that little, they really don't need that much handling. They need, um, positioning. Parents usually need education, but most of those parents, when they, by the time they can bring that child home, they know how to do it. They've been having to do it in-house in the NICU for, you know, a couple weeks. They know how to flush every line and change the diapers and, you know, whatever. Um, so sometimes as a therapist, I felt sort of redundant. Like I was just there to be mindful of what was going on, but because of the state requirements, I still had to prove I was doing something. Um, so that could often lead to frustration. Um, but it was really cool because when those kids turn three, they age out. So you do this whole thing of trying to get them into the school system, get them into um, PPCD programming if they, you know, fit into that. Uh, it's really a lot. But because of the way ECI has recently redone some of their guidelines or, or maybe just the MHMR Tarrant County, they now serve their populations differently. So instead of it being the standard model where a child could receive OT, PT, speech, medical nutrition, whatever, now they pick one discipline and that one discipline is expected to do everything. So let's say previously this child had been receiving three disciplines and they say, well, um, he's showing sensory needs. We're going to get rid of PT, speech, and just OT. But we also want you as an OT to be working on his speech goals. And we also want you to be working on his gait training. You know, um, it's called like the Kansas model or something. Like that's where it's been rolled out as. Um, and that was difficult because that is one, not how any of us were trained. Um, and that doesn't meet our needs as holistic therapists, because even though we want to come at it, we're, as a whole, we want to do that, but we don't assume to be the one who knows it all, right? So that could, a lot of people left where I was at. And I did it for one year and it got to the point where I was like crying on the way to work. I would just, I was miserable. It was awful. You know, there wasn't, it wasn't fun. It was really difficult work. And um, the system is so overloaded that we were getting more kids than you could possibly treat in a week on top of all the evaluations you're expected to do, all the helping out other people, all the meetings, all the these classroom projects and things you're expected to do. Um, but because you aren't able to see all those kids, if you don't want to work 50, 60 hours a week, we were all getting poor job reviews. So even though I was unable to see, you know, the 40 kids they had on my caseload, I got a poor job review because of it, because I wasn't willing to sat to work 60 hours a week. Um, and so that caused a lot of burnout for most of the therapists I know. So pretty much anytime you go to an ECI setting that I've experienced, it's almost always a brand new team. It's almost always a brand new staff, um, which is not good. This is a really great program. It has a lot of potential, but because of the funding and requirements that are coming from people who have no involvement in this, it's kind of ruining it. 
Um, and now they actually, last I heard, they will see children up to six, I think, if they're not in school. But I'm like, who the hell's got the time for that? You know, these, these workers are already so overloaded. How can you add thousands of new kids? It's crazy. You know, so I did that for one year exactly. Um, and then I started my own um, website, which is occupationaltherapyanswers.com. While doing that, I was working at an outpatient clinic. This is when I came back to Epic. And I also started working at Kindred, which is a rehab hospital. This was my first time really working with adults. Um, in a, especially in a rehab setting. And that was fair. It was fair. I didn't feel like I had great training, which kind of sucked. So before we move on too far, can you speak to your EI real quick about, um, how much money you were making in that setting? Because I'm up in the New England area and I have always been intrigued by EI, but a full-time position with two weeks vacation, uh, we would make between like forty-two to forty-five thousand dollars a year, which to me is not is not what sustainable. No, um, what I I made seventy to seventy-five thousand a year there. Okay, so that's roughly like what thirty-seven, thirty-eight dollars an hour, something like that. Um, but which isn't Texas pays pretty well, so that wasn't outstanding, but. I'm sure they pay more now because no one will take the job. That's the problem they're having is it's one of those, like they'll take new grads and be like, we're going to give you, yeah, you know, $80,000 a year and we're going to give you three months of training. And, we're, and you're like, yeah, this is gonna be awesome. And then you get in there and it's that whole, if it's too good to be true, there's a reason. Yeah. You know, so you may find better teams working for less money. You know what I mean? Because if they're having to pay a lot, and it's state funded, that money's got to come from somewhere. <laughs> and they'd probably much rather use that funding internally. You know, they'd rather use it for, for trainings, for um, equipment, as opposed to just trying to keep their staff on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for sharing that with me. I was just curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I was talking about working at Kindred, which is an adult rehab facility. Um, and like I said, that was just sort of um, a blip in the radar. It was something different. It wasn't necessarily difficult, especially working um, PRN. Um, it was fine. I was pregnant during that time. So that's probably what made it harder for me was um, uh, some pregnant women, you may know, get what's called morning sickness. <laughs> um, but basically it's just this like nonstop nausea. And so when you're constantly dealing with you know, sick people who have fluids and are unable to take care of themselves properly, it makes you a little hot and nauseous. Um, so I kind of struggled with that. Um, but that was not necessarily, it was just because of, I was pregnant, you know, that's not something that normally bothers me. I've at all. Um, but moving past that, once I had my baby, I didn't go back into the hospital because I didn't want to risk, um, exposing myself and bringing it home to my kid. Um, so now I run the website and I do uh, children's yoga as well. And that's uh, been a pretty good mix for me right now. But as my son's getting older, I'm looking at exploring um, more opportunities locally. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So how many hours would you say you're working right now? 
Not a ton. Um, outside, you know, doing OT wise, I, you know, 10 hours, 10 hours a week. Um, and that includes website and yoga. Um, that's about what I have to give at the moment. Hey everybody, I am so genuinely excited to tell you about MedBridge. So MedBridge is a continuing ed site and they have tons of continuing ed courses all available online. You can stream them at your own pace. They also have home exercise plans, which are incredible. You can literally build your own plan with pictures that can perfectly suit whatever client you're working for. It's honestly so awesome. And you get unlimited CEUs. And these CEU courses are just really intriguing and exciting. Like it's, I've done continuing ed online in the past and these ones that they select are just very much in line with what I find interesting. And I feel like you might find them interesting as well. So are you struggling with finding the resources for your time for CEUs? With almost 2,000 accredited evidence-based streaming courses, live CEU webinars, MedBridge is your all-in-one solution. And actually, if you use my code, it's spill the OT, capital S, capital T, capital OT. So spill the OT, one word, capital S, capital T, capital OT. You can get $175 off of your year-long subscription, which is awesome. I mean, that's like significant amount of money off. So if you are interested, please go check it out. Again, use the code spill the OT, capital S, capital T, capital OT, all one word. All right. I really hope that you go check it out. Enjoy. <laughs> um, well, that's the great thing about OT, and that's actually one of the best things, I think, um, if you're somebody who wants to start a family, because it is so flexible, and you can keep everything active, and then, like, take on the hours as you need them. So I think that's my favorite thing about being an OT. It definitely is. You meet a lot of women who are married, um, who are work, who have children who are working several different places, PRN, because OT as a whole tends to be a very understanding field. You don't meet a whole lot of hard ass OTs. You know what I mean? Yeah, Everyone. That's a good point. Everyone's pretty lovey-dovey, hippy-dippy. You know, we, we are pretty flexible people. We understand, okay, you want to, you need to get your kid to school. Okay, we'll come in here, come back then. You know, it just, it just works out that way. Um, and most people I know, most OTs I know are usually working several jobs. Um, you know, one of them might be more hobby-based, like, you know, hippotherapy or um, uh, working in a pool or something. That's not necessarily their main income stream, but it's like, well, might as well. That's cool too. Could you share what it's like during an actual treatment session with some of your kids? I know it's probably a huge range, but maybe like a handful of what a treatment session might look like. Um, I'll just pick a few that I, I've seen for a long time there. Um, pretty much I was seeing, I would say elementary school age kids, kids as my norm. Uh, generally, we're, we're um, nonverbal autistic kids, and that's kind of what I'll base this around because that, that was most of my case. And they were generally boys. I'll say that too. Um, so I would usually they get to the point you open the, the lobby door, they see you, they come running up to you, they're excited to get started. And I would always um, 
you know, I'd greet them, say hello, we'd do whatever, and I'd make them go over and wash their hands as the first thing to establish some normalcy in their routine, hygiene patterns, um, and kind of get them used to talking, talking to me or listening to me, following my directions before we went into my treatment room. Because in the treatment room, it can be so overwhelming with toys and, and things. Um, I'd say as OTs, we generally keep the room pretty uh, clean and clear because we don't want visual stimuli. But some of these kids are so easily stimulated, it doesn't take much for them to totally, you know, bounce off the wall and totally forget why they're there. Um, I would get them at the table if that's where we were working at. And I would usually give them something relatively easy to start with, a coloring sheet, um, a puzzle, some blocks, something to once again kind of normalize our routine, get us started. And that would give me a chance to sit down with them, watch how they were problem solving that day, watch their attention and focus. And then I could grade the activities that we were going to do from there. So if I noticed they're really on it, they're doing great with these activities, then I would probably pull out some of the harder fine motor or balance activities. But if I, you know, if they won't, they can't stay in their chair, if they're all over the place for having meltdowns, well then today is not the day to really push the boundaries. I just need to, you know, try to soothe and relax and maybe incorporate more sensory to get them up to a more appropriate working level. Mm -hmm. How long were your sessions typically? Um, 30 to 30 to 55 minutes, I would say. Um, very rarely did I have to end early and usually it was just because of behavior. Um, and I would work through most negative behaviors, but, um, I had, I had several kids that were just very violent, aggressive kids. And I just don't, I don't do that. You know, I'm, I'm not about to play around with that. If you're, that's beyond my pay grade, you know? And so when they got to throw in chairs, throw in trash cans, I was like, all right, come on, we're going to go see mom. <laughs> and they'd usually just walk right out. So did you ever get kids who had like feeding issues? Yes. I saw, um, if they had feeding issues in the outpatient clinic, it was primarily sensory based. Um, but I did see several children with, um, like weak suck, uh, you know, preemies or micro preemies who are struggling on the bottle or breast and during ECI. And what actually, would you do for that? Like, would you have to get a lactation consultant or were you the main person who would help? I was, I was the main person. I would do my, as much research as I could. I would speak to other professionals on my team, but I was the one who was having to go in there. Um, so like, if I didn't think a kid was latching properly, I would sit down with the parent. We would look at, honestly, I'd pull up Google and be like, this is what it should look like. Is this what that looks like? No. Okay. Let's try this. You know, and we would kind of strategize through there. Um, I, I do have a, an article on there about weak suck, I believe. And just some of the different modalities you have to do of using tape around the mouth, certain tapping, um, trying to get them to suck on a pacifier and you gently try to pull it out of their mouth. And of course, they're going to try to hang on to it. So that's going to help strengthen their, um, the muscles around the mouth. Um, you know, all different kinds of positioning, you know, sideline, different nipples, different. I mean, it's, that's one of the harder things I think about feeding, especially not being um, specialized in that, is that there's so many things you can do. And that you, I'm, I, a lot of times I wasn't super sure what was making it work. <laughs> you know, I would, we would just kind of throw everything be like, okay, let's try sideline with a Haberman. Okay. We're going to tilt them up this way. Okay. Now you do this and, oh, let's thicken the bottle. And then they would stop 
refluxing or stop, you know, whatever the problem was until we could get them in to see a specialist. So my goal was pretty much keep them safe. Um, keep the parent feeling like they can handle this, but also get on a, um, get on the doctor's waiting list ASAP for that ENT, for that swallow study, whatever it was, because I wasn't going to be able to fix it as that was not my specialty. There are some OTs who, who you would go to, to work on those things, but, um, I'm not one of them. I just kind of did the, uh, try to put a bandaid on it until we could get in to see a specialist. Mm -hmm. So in EI, it's more of consultation with the family or the parents, but you're mm -hmm. also still working with the kids. When I was there, the idea was that I was teaching a skill to the family, then the family would have to demonstrate that skill back to me. Um, so that is rarely how the sessions went because a lot of these families were um, either not interested in that, <laughs> they didn't want to do that, um, or because the families, you know, so they wanted you to come in and do the therapy. And if you tried to get them to repeat the actions to you, a lot of them just, I mean, just couldn't like straight up couldn't do it. It was crazy. Um, but last I heard, I still have friends who work there. They said that the, in ECI, you're no longer allowed to touch the child that, um, here in Tarrant County, that they're just expected to educate the parents for like an hour, but that as therapists, they're not really supposed to be doing hands-on therapy with the kids. Oh, I wonder if that's to try and help reinforce that it's the parents who need to carry it over. Probably. I, I would assume so because I know that really no one was having any luck because if, and it makes sense, you know, um, if I had a child with severe, you know, impairments or difficulties, I want the specialist to come in and, you know, quote unquote, fix them. And, you know, but if you have somebody sitting there saying, okay, show me how you do this. Okay, try this, do this. You know, a lot of them were like, well, when's the therapy going to start? You know, when are you going to fix them? I don't know what I'm doing. Otherwise, I wouldn't have you here. You know, it, it got a lot of aggression out of parents. How does it compare in your outpatient? It sounds like parents typically stayed in the lobby during Correct. your sessions. Okay. Mm -hmm. I would always invite parents um, into the room for the first few times just because, you know, I don't want anyone taking my kid back. Well, I don't know what we're doing there, you know, so I'd want them to come back, see me, see our routine. Um, and usually once they were comfortable with us, they were totally fine to stay out in the lobby. And, you know, I'd invite them back if we were going to do something fun or cool or, or whatever. But a lot of times when the parent comes back, the kid's um, attention span just kind of goes crazy and they just would perform poorly. But um, they, where I was at, we had a translator um, who would translate what we did later to the parents um, as they were generally non-English speaking, but um, if I was working on feeding, say like, okay, a Down syndrome child or, um, okay, so that's two different things. Let's say autism. We'll just stick with the autism. Um, you know, and they're like, he only eats French fries from McDonald's and they have to be in the little red French fry container and his Coke has to be on the McDonald's cup. And you know what I mean? Like very, you know, those kids. Very rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, we would, I'd have them come in, you know, mom would bring the, the food and like, we might just try like doing the dips, you know, how that is, um, you know, you try just dipping in ketchup, dipping in ranch, dipping in whatever. They don't have to eat it. They just have to perform the act. Will you just put a French fry in there? Okay, let's throw it away. Fine. You know, and then we might try to get to where we're just sticking our finger in the dip 
okay, you know, and you know how it is, you grade that activity and you're trying to get them just more and more comfortable with a new stimulus around that food without ruining that food for the child. You know, because you, you encounter all those families who are like, well, she'll only eat brownies and mac and cheese and whatever, some other soft carb. Um, so I tried to mix in spinach, you know, pureed spinach into whatever so that they'd eat it. But then that kid finds that thing and then they won't eat that food anymore. So they've effectively ruined one of the three foods that that child will eat. Mm. So unless you've got a kid that's really on the verge of like accepting other foods or is accepting a wider variety of foods, I would say just don't mess with it. Like you need your kid not to have an NG tube, you know, or, or a peg or something. Keep those foods sacred, <laughs> um, but continue to try to build on the outside of them. The dips, try different colors, try different shapes, have them help you cook it. I mean, it takes forever, but you just have to keep plodding away at it. That's really interesting. How long did you see most of your kids? I saw most of those kids from the time I was there to the time I left. And then when I came back, those kids were still there. <laughs> okay, so they um, might be in therapy for years and years then. And that was a um, struggle of mine. And I do have an article written about that, about when do you know it's time to discharge? Um, because that is one of the, I'm, as I said, I live in Texas, and there have been a lot of issues with fraud in Texas with therapy, um, primarily because they're saying they're keeping these kids in therapy forever and ever and ever. And I was really proactive about discharging kids because I don't believe OT is a lifelong sentence. I think OT is to get you in, build some skills, get you out. Okay, maybe in six months, a year, you need another tune-up. Come on in, get some more skills, time to get out. Um, but a lot of these kids who were low-functioning autism or who were um, well-insured, those parents wanted them to be in therapy nonstop all the time. You, I could discharge them. They'd come back the next week, ask for a, you know, um, an evaluation. I saw kids, you know, years later and I'm like, he's still here and he's not doing anything any different than he ever was. I don't know how they're getting that by insurance, you know, how they were proving he was making progress when this child may never make progress for the rest of his life. You know, I would say like, okay, this 10 year old girl, this is about as functional as she will ever be. We need to be okay with that because that's where she's at, and now we need to let her go and learn how to experience life on her own, then, okay, let's say in two or three years, she's having new difficulties arise from her new age, her new setting in life. Okay, bring her back in. Let's work on those, you know, but there's no reason for a kid to be in therapy for years and years and years and years, especially for something that's not necessarily going to change. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's a blanket statement. Doesn't apply to everything, of course, but you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you kind of just answered this, but do you have any advice for therapists who um, may need to have that conversation with parents? Do you have any tips or tricks for them? Explaining that to, to families? Yeah. So, okay, so one of my things would be I would sit them down and say, okay, where, what do you want so-and-so to be doing this time next year. And they would say, you know, I want them to tire. I want her to tire shoes and I want her to get dressed by herself and I want her to do whatever. And I'd look at where we are now and I'd say, okay, so what needs to happen between now and then for these things to happen? And it generally came down to 
a miracle needed to happen between this time and that time for this kid to be tying her shoes. That was just not going to happen. Right. Um, and so it's like, okay, let's, let's pocket that. What is another goal and another goal? And we'd go back and forth to it. And, and, you know, and you basically just kind of have to very gently drive it home. Like this is where she is. Um, that I think now is a good time for a break, especially if you have a kid that's starting to get behavioral, like they were totally a peach for a year and now they're being real ornery. They're being full of behaviors. They're just not participating. Like, okay, it's time for a break. Um, a lot of parents are afraid their child will regress when they're not in therapy. And that's, so, I mean, a month, two months before you have that planned discharge, you get mom into every session and you show her what you're doing. Okay. At home, what are ways we can do this to keep her fine motor skills from deteriorating? Okay. What are ways we can do that? You know, and you start to try to problem solve together for future success. It's not just a, okay, we're done. Bye. You know, you, this is like a months long lead up to it. And generally by the time you're actually filing that discharge paperwork, you want the parent to be like, yeah, it's right. You're right. We need a break. Let's, you know, let's take a couple months off and then we'll reassess. And generally speaking, those parents came back anyway, but it allowed the child to have some flexibility in their schedule and to get a break, you know, because, you know, children with special needs are just as at risk of being overscheduled as your typical child nowadays. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even more likely to be overscheduled if they're going to all therapies. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Cool. Well, I think that's some really good advice. All right, so I want to wrap up because I know that you have a little kiddo to get back to, but could you talk about your website? So OccupationalTherapyAnswers.com came out of a lot of my frustration as a new therapist. Um, I always say I'm pretty naturally curious, and one of the most annoying things I do all the time is like, why, why, why? (laughs) Um, And a lot of times you just can't find why, especially in OT as it's, you know, it's only about a hundred years old. It's not well, um, there's not a lot of evidence behind a lot of what we do. (laughs) A lot of it's anecdotal, um, especially when it comes to sensory. And so I wanted a place where like you could just look, just, I just want a yes or no. Is this going to work? Is this not going to work? And that led me to doing, um, a lot of my own research and then wanting to put it out there and be like, okay, how do I get a kid to wean off of bottle breast cup to an open mouth cup. Okay, how do I address, you know, hypotonia in the best possible ways without eliciting a seizure? You know, just, I mean, there's so many different ways, but you can get bogged down in it. Um, and so my husband is a wonderful, well-connected man and he knows so many people and he helped me get this going with, with the help of several of our friends. Um, and I've just kind of used it as my own little, playground. Honestly, I, I go through and I've done several different series of, you know, nutrition supplements, things for, you know, autism, um, ADHD. I just did one about, uh, the CBD oils, you know, I just kind of use it for my own, (laughs) to my own interests really. And it gives me an excuse to do concentrated research on areas I'm interested in. And I've been checking out your website too, because me and my husband really want to start our family and Mm -hmm. you have so many good articles for babies and newborns and like the first couple of years. So for anyone listening, if you have a youngster yourself, this is a pretty cool resource. Thank you. Yeah, there's, um, I was part of, of, so our OT association here in Texas is 
Texas OTA or OT association. We call it TOTA. Um, but I actually gave a CEU at our um, district TOTA meeting on um, red flags or like warning signs in the ages of zero to three months. And that has probably been one of my bigger um, interest, interest areas, but also I feel like it can help not just therapists, but also parents. Cause a lot of parents, when you get this little baby, it's like just a little bit of mashed potatoes in a diaper, you know, you're like, what do I do with this thing? It's just, and so there's so many things that are kind of scary. And so I want to be able to have a place like you could just go down the list. Like, is this scary? Is this scary? Is this, you know, should I be afraid of this? Um, and for the most time it's no, but there are a lot of things that parents are like, Oh, Oh, I didn't realize they shouldn't be, you know, keeping their thumbs tucked in their fists. Like, you know, things that as therapists we go, Oh yeah, you don't want to see that. But if you're just, you know, a parent with no child experience, it's like, well, you would never think of that. Yeah. And even for therapists um, who are out in the field, I feel like we're around dysfunction so often that sometimes we forget what normal looks like. Absolutely. That is, I used to say that all the time I would be out somewhere and I'd be like, oh my gosh, the kid just waved at me. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, my kids never wave at me. <laughs> and be like, it's a totally normal response, but you just don't all, you rarely get to see it as a therapist. So it kind of skews your what's normal. Yeah, totally. All right. My last couple of questions are related to finance and you do not have to answer any of these if you're not comfortable, but if you mm-hmm. are comfortable sharing, could you um, share how much it costs for you to get your education? Um, so I went to Texas Women's University, which at the time was the um, cheapest public university in Texas. Um, my parents had saved up enough for me to attend my, for my undergrad without having to take any loans. I also got a um, scholarship each year I was there. Um, I believe it was about $8,000. A, a year, a semester. So I don't have a firm answer on that because at that time I was not the one paying it. Uh, my parents uh, had saved up all that for me and I was getting a scholarship. Then when I went into my graduate degree, which was also at Texas Women's in Denton, I was, my dad is a disabled Vietnam vet. So I was considered a dependent of a disabled veteran at that time. So in my undergrad, I got a stipend, a monthly stipend from the VA. Now that ran out when I got my undergraduate degree. But my dad was deployed from Texas, which meant I was eligible for what's called the Hazelwood Act. And I applied and received the Hazelwood Act, which was 100% tuition reimbursement for my graduate degree. So once again, mm -hmm. so once again, no, no loans, no anything. So at one point, I probably could have told you what it was, but at this point, I, I have no idea. <laughs> well, good um, for you. That's really that's really awesome to hear. I haven't heard many stories like that, so I'm happy for you. I had a lot of co uh, coworkers, a lot of colleagues in school who were you know ninety eight thousand dollars in debt, who were you know thousands you know of thousands of dollars in debt, and that thank God was never my story. We had saved aggressively. I had scholarships. Um, you know, I was always 
always going for scholarships, even, you know, in the middle of the semester, I'd be calling down there and seeing if there was anything come up or, you know, the money is out there. It really is. It's just, you have to be so creative to find it. That makes me happy to hear. And actually a couple people have reached out who are just um, around 18 or 17 who are thinking about doing either OT or PT. Mm -hmm. So for those people listening, I encourage you to go seek out any scholarships and like, what's the harm in just applying? You might not get it, but if you apply, absolutely. You kind of touched on salary at the beginning, but would you feel comfortable sharing a salary that you would accept right now if you were offered a job? If I were to go back to work, so, so I have no real interest in going back to work full time at this point, working for anybody but myself. <laughs> um, so let's say I were to take a part-time job. I would not at this point in my life accept anything less than $50, $55 an hour. Um, and that's because here in Texas, they do not include benefits. They don't include insurance. I'd have to pay for, you know, get that through my husband. Um, but also it's a matter of how much do you value your own skills? There are plenty of jobs out there that will pay you $37 an hour, which is not bad by any means. Um, but I have to have enough belief in my own skills and my own value to say, I'm not a new grad. I have plenty of experience. 50 to $55 an hour is not unreasonable because I've had other people I worked with who would only, you know, roll out of bed for $65 an hour. You know, I mean, it's, as a new grad, I would have accepted anything, <laughs> you know, you're just so excited to go, but also a lot of places, but you need to come at them with enough confidence to be like, Oh, if you're offering $35 an hour, I know plenty of new grads who would love to accept that. But if you have, you know, if you're needing a more serious or more, I don't know, not educated, but more experienced therapist, this is my fee. Mm-hmm. And I think that by doing that, you're helping out other therapists because if you as a seasoned therapist accept $36 an hour, then somebody else with maybe four years experience is then going to be accepting that same offer because they can't ask for 50 if somebody with seven mm -hmm. years experience has already accepted 36. Exactly. All right, my last question. If you were 18 again, would you go back to school? Oh, I hate this question because I don't know that I would. Um, I've been, I was, um, when I was like 16, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a physical therapist. <laughs> um, and so I went to a job fair kind of thing with my mom and, uh, and I went straight to the physical therapy and was talking to them and they're like, yeah, do you love math and angles and science? And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> this is not it at all. And I was kind of talking to him about my personality and who I am. And this guy was like, okay, go check out the occupational therapy place. And I had never even heard of OT and just, you know, the way they were, were saying it, I was like, yes, this is wonderful. I love it. And literally since I was 16, I've known what I wanted to do. I got accepted to the first program. I got accepted to this. I, you know, God has just really made a, an easy path for me. And it's not something I have to necessarily work hard at. It all really comes very naturally to me. But the things that break my heart about it is the, the bureaucracy of the system, the insurance, the sometimes the patients themselves. You know, it's just, it can be really difficult unless you find a niche that you love. 
because burnout is so high. I think I read the other day that the average uh, career expectancy of therapists, whether it be PT, OT, speech, is seven years because you just get so burnt out. You just, you're expected to give a lot and you're very rarely given anything back. Um, whether that be by the administration you're working for, what, you know, your, your boss, your patients, it just, it's just, we as OTs tend to be very giving people and very, um, you know, empathic and empathetic and we feel very deeply. Um, but if you're a business manager, that's not your concern. You know, you've got a business to run. You got to keep things moving. Um, and so it takes a very special place to keep their therapist for a long time. Um, because it's just, it's really hard, you know, and a lot of these kids are not going to get better. And a lot of the patients you see are not going to get better. And there's only so much of that a healthy human adult can really take before it just weighs you down, you know? Um, so I go over that question a lot. Like, would I go back and do OT? Would I really do it? And, and sometimes I just don't know. I don't know because it's been a very, at times it can be very heartbreaking. Um, but I don't know that I would ever be called to anything quite as much as I would be to OT. Yeah. I feel like if we could eliminate the whole insurance piece and the productivity piece, I would love OT because I Mm -hmm. love actually working with the people, but it's so funny. You said the seven year thing. I'm at year like six and a half right now (laughs) Yeah, and I'm really so close to calling it quits and I don't know what the answer would be for me. But that is very interesting that you say that because I'm at the brink of burnout. I'm, I'm burnt. At you are, you are, you are. And, and you just, you don't want to admit it to yourself because it's hard to imagine all this work you've put into it, all this soul and tears and studying and heart that you've put into it, that you're, it's, you're done, you're over it. I mean, I was, I think I've been a therapist for like two and a half years and I called up one of my friends and was like, holy hell, what am I going to do? Like, I, I don't know, how am I going to do this? And she was at the exact same point. She was like, I was where you were a year ago. And so my, my advice to burnout is to talk to your other friends, you know, not people you work with, but you know, your other OT friends and be like, what do we do? And also look into different um, areas and it may be a total 180. You know, you may be in a hospital right now go look, um, go look at EI, you know, go look at hypotherapy, go look at special needs yoga, you know, just do something totally outlandish that can kind of rev you up. And that's the nice thing about OT is it's not just one area. Um, and a lot of OTs don't stay in one area for very long because of that exact reason. You know, you could keep PRN at the hospital you're at, say, and go get a part-time job at like a nursing home or, or, you know, a, um, outdoor recreation facility for special needs kids. I mean, you can sell yourself anywhere as an OT, but if you want to, you know, I always say keep your licensure by all means, you know, don't ever let that thing lapse, but go and sell yourself to areas you want to work in because as OTs, we are (laughs) invaluable at making things work. You know, we can, we can sell anything. You just have to go out there and sell yourself and tell them why they need you and why they should pay you so much. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much for talking to me. You have just put into words so eloquently a lot of the thoughts that I've had. So I think a lot of people are going to resonate with what you have to say. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or things that you would like me to cover, 
please uh, feel free to shoot me an email at spilltheot at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at spill underscore the underscore OT. Um, right now it's just basically like different memes, but they're kind of funny. I spend a lot of time on them. Um, and as always, if you could please rate and review this on iTunes, it would be greatly appreciated. All right, see you next week. Bye.